Greetings, everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to another of our online editions of the OHC's regular Work in Progress talks. Work in Progress talks are presentations given by faculty and graduate students who are current research fellows at the Oregon Humanities Center about their research projects. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I'll moderate and ask the questions. You can also enable the closed captioning function of Zoom if you'd like, so that you can activate captions using that live transcript option. The talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. I'm delighted now to introduce our speaker for today, Shuangting Zhang, a PhD candidate in Chinese and East Asian literatures at U of O, and a 2021 Oregon Humanities Center dissertation fellow. Shuangting's academic interests include 20th century Chinese literature and culture, Marxian criticism, genre theories, especially theories of melodrama, and uh, the aesthetic functions of literary texts. She has earned two MAs at the U of O, the first in English, the second in Asian studies. Based on her dissertation, Shuangting's work in progress talk today is titled Revolutionary Melodrama, Tales of Family, Kinship, and the Nation in Modern China. Welcome, Shuangting. Thank you, Dr. Pepes, for that introduction. Let me share my screen first. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you, Dr. Pepes, for the introduction. And um, can everyone hear me okay? Okay. Um, First of all, I would like to thank the Oregon Humanities Center for this opportunity to present my work and my research, and of course, for their generous support during these really difficult times. Um, my fellowship term actually allowed me to finish a chapter of my dissertation, for which I'm extremely grateful. And I also would like to thank all the guests. Thank you for coming and for joining today's talk and I look forward to hearing your thoughts and ideas. Um, so I would like to start with the title of my dissertation, Revolutionary Melodrama, Tales of Family, Kingship, and the Nation in Modern China. I'd like to start with the seemingly paradox paradoxical pairing of revolution and melodrama. So melodrama proper refers to a kind of stage play that came into being in the late 19th century in France, which subsequently spread to America, Britain, and other European cultures. It is characterized by its romantic and sentimental plot, histrionic performance style, and use of music that accompanies it to intensify whatever is going on stage. So melos in Greek, of course, means music or songs. So melodrama, as theorized by scholars such as Peter Brooks, has certain discernible features, including strong emotionalism, moral polarization, overt villainy, persecution of the good, and final reward of virtue, extravagant expression, sudden reversals, and so on and so forth. And of course, Hollywood's encounter with this genre made melodrama highly adaptable and globally recognizable. Film scholars have attributed China's own um, 
film scholars have attributed the formation of melodramatic tradition in Chinese cinema to both Hollywood melodrama and to China's own melodramatic tradition, including traditional opera and popular romantic genres that flourished in urban centers in the early through mid 20th century. Melodrama, in particular family melodrama, remained an intrinsic part of early Chinese cinema, realist cinema, and later socialist realist cinema. But melodrama has also been understood as a quintessentially bourgeois form. It is particularly adept at capturing social realities of pervasive injustices produced by capitalist modernity. It draws attention to those structural sociopolitical problems, not to solve those problems, but to resolve them on the level of the personal and familial concerns. And in doing so, of course, maintains the status quo. On the other hand, precisely because melodrama's capacity to represent social injustices and to dichotomize its siding with the underclass, with the, the powerless, it always shared a close affinity with leftist politics. The intensified suffering and victimhood of the oppressed and innocent featured in melodrama makes the overthrow of the forces of oppression a moral imperative. My recent research has brought to my attention that actually the Soviets experimented with melodrama in the 1920s to create a new revolutionary Soviet theater. And really eminent intellectuals such as Maxim Gorky thought melodrama could serve as the model for that creation precisely because of those aforementioned features of melodrama. So a shout out to Russia specialists here. Um, if you know more scholarship on this particular topic, I would love to um, please point me to, to those types of scholarship. <clears throat> um, and so what I am interested in is how this quintessentially bourgeois form with a kind of revolutionary potential was utilized and repurposed by progressive Chinese intellectuals and writers to create a passionate revolutionary collective capable of making socio-political change. My dissertation traces the ways in which this revolutionary melodramatic aesthetic transformed across different media, across different historical periods to produce new affective experiences, to cultivate new political subjectivities and to make revolution. While bourgeois melodrama eases universal suffering via the remedy of romantic love or other normative forms of family relations, revolutionary melodrama rechannels personal and collective feelings of pity and hatred evoked by the suffering of the innocent and oppressed into political action and social change. Revolutionary melodramatic texts go beyond the mere recognition of the virtue or the recognition of universal suffering. They identify through moral and affective polarization, oppressive forces at the evil that must be struggled against and overthrown. And in melodrama, it is always the individual 
or the individual's family that suffer injustices. So we also have to talk about the thematic concern of the melodramatic mode, which explains the second part of my title. Um, I choose family and kinship as a thematic thread and analytical category because the issues of family are intricately linked to the problematics of gender relations, sexual identity, social reproduction, and various forms of sociality that underwent drastic transformations under Chinese modernity, including especially the rise of nationalism. Reform-minded intellectuals thought, saw the traditional hierarchical family and kinship system as an impediment to China's path to modernization and nation building. And yet, national belongings and affiliations were often articulated through the affective rhetoric of family and kinship. Family as the most natural form of belonging, natural with a scare quote, and the site for fostering intimacies and affective bonds became a useful rhetorical and conceptual framework to concretize an otherwise abstract and imagined affiliation. Precisely because traditional Chinese culture treated the biological family and biological kinship as the naturalized site for affection and ethical obligation, it became the most contested site for the meaning of modernity and the possibility of transforming sociality that go beyond heredity. Melodramatic texts centering on family and kinship embedded in larger socio-political changes create this kind of textual place, aesthetic space in which these issues can be tested and debated where different kinds of solidarity, affiliation and affective bonds can be imagined, formed and articulated. So the primary texts discussed in this study are representative manifestations of this revolutionary melodramatic aesthetic in four key historical moments in 20th century China, which leads to the first chapter of my dissertation. The first chapter begins with the May 4th New Culture Movement that called for a radical break with tradition. The iconic novel Family, Jia, written by Ba Jing, epitomizes the May 4th generation's denunciation of the traditional family. It is a highly melodramatic narrative that centers so much on victimhood and suffering. In the preface to the novel Family, written in 1937. Bajin explains the reason why he wrote the novel in the first place. So here's Bajin's quote. I shall shout Jacques at a dying system. I cannot forget that even on its way to a full collapse, such a system captures more food that is sacrifices. Therefore, I will write the novel Family as a public call on behalf of a generation of youth. I will cry out in the injustices on behalf of those numerous young people sacrificed. I will save all those youth from the claws of the monster. Um, it's highly, very hyperbolic kind of rhetoric 
and um, the theme of cannibalism that the the dying system that the traditional family system cannibalizes its younger generation is a pretty common theme for the May, May 4th generation. So the kind of traditional gentry family portrayed in this novel is stifling and degenerate. It entraps and cannibalizes the younger generation. The youngest brother in this family, Jue Hui, is particularly keen to escape the entrapment of, a of this family that he's born into. Instead, he channels his energy into editing a youth magazine. He finds a new kind of kinship relation with the editorial staff at the magazine, with people he has never met across the nation who read and write to this magazine. He finds those people and their relationship with each other particularly refreshing and invigorating compared to the stifling environment of his own biological family. The imagined community of the nation offers an alternative form of kinship and belonging that is not based on blood relations, but far better alternative in this case than the biological family. In this chapter, I try to argue that the high level of melodramatic tears and victimhood is a necessary component of its aesthetic vision that established family as a public manifesto and accusation against a decaying tradition. And chapter two of the dissertation moves out of the urban settings of the May 4th to the hinterland of rural China. So what happened in 1937 was of course the full outbreak of the Second Sino-Japanese War, or known as the War of Resistance against Japanese in China. Intellectuals, writers, and artists as a result out of the war were driven out of the enclaves of all of some of those coastal cities, urban areas, into the hinterland of rural China. And the Communist Party ended up in a place called Yan'an in Northern China. The, 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 the reality of that was the majority of the population were just illiterate peasants. The exigencies of the war made the mobilization of the masses and appealing to their tastes the primary goal for works of art. So confronted with this historical reality, intellectuals, writers, and artists, they responded by rethinking the very failure of the Mayforce tradition to reach the masses, despite its original goal of being an enlightenment movement to educate the masses. This also triggered a rethinking of the kind of 19th century European critical realism promoted by the May 4th generation. So this chapter uses the music drama, the creation of the music drama, The White Haired Girl in Yang'an, the wartime base for the Communist Party. The music drama features excessive emotionalism and moral polarization between the persecuted peasant family and the evil landlord two defining characteristics of melodrama identified by Peter Brooks. And of course, being a music drama itself, it puts Melo's music back at the center of this piece of dramatic work. 
So that, that's why this chapter is titled Putting Melos Back in Drama. <clears throat> so, um, the melodramatic mode of narration really perme permeated artworks for revolutionary and propagandistic purposes during this period, precisely because the mode's capacity to produce moral and emotional legibility via moral and affective polarization especially with the medium of theater and theater reform, the kind of spoken drama and naturalistic performance style promoted by the May 4th intellectuals never gained much popularity with the masses. The majority of both urban and rural population remain very much under the sway of traditional operas, including Peking opera and various kinds of regional operas. So the communists were particularly aware of this and they began to add songs and music to visual performance in order to heighten the emotional responses that could in turn elicit mass political activism. So the creation of the music drama, The White Hair Girl really comes out of this particular historical, intellectual and aesthetic context. It is very much a product of and a testing ground for those aesthetic and philosophical debates, in particular, an increasing awareness of audience reception and a redefinition of realism that foregrounds affect and praxis. I argue in this chapter that the modes of the melodramatic and the romantic become synthesized with the realist mode to produce a highly integrated form of mass theatrical work that appropriates existing popular religious beliefs, worldviews, and structures of feeling associated with the peasantry in order to displace them with new revolutionary ideas and ideals. So now I'd like to turn to the actual story of the music drama, The White-Haired Girl. Um, where did the story come from? How did this production come into being? So the story of The White-Haired Girl originated from a folk legend about the white-haired immortal that communist cultural workers discovered in Hebei province in Northern China in the 1930s. It was then reworked into short narratives and reportage before reaching Yang'an. So the, the storyline of the music drama is similar to previous written narratives. So as we can see here, the old peasant Yang Bailao, he's again find himself unable to pay, pay the annual rent to the landlord. And um, the landlord then forces him to sell, sell his only daughter, Xi'er, the peasant girl, after Yang commits suicide out of shame and guilt, she is enslaved and then raped by the landlord. And with the help of another sympathetic housemate, she manages to escape into the mountains. In the following years, she lives in the cave, leaving off offerings people made in the nearby temple, during which her hair turns into white. Meanwhile, rumors about the sightings of the white-haired immortal begin to spread among the villagers in scene five, Xi'er confronts the landlord and his servants who have come to the temple to make offerings to the white-haired immortal. Mistaken for a ghost, Xi'er accepts the misidentification at the moment, unleashes her vengeful wrath, 
and swears to devour the landlord. It is by assuming the identity of a ghost that the peasant girl Xiar first unleashes her power as an avenger for class oppression. And of course, the final justice comes with the return of the Red Army and the last scene of the music drama ends with a climactic scene of the peasants' public accusation and collective reckoning of the landlord's evil deeds. And of course, the landlord is executed in the end. So the, the melodramatic overt villainy of the landlord really lies in the violation of the sanctity of kingship bonds by taking the daughter away from her natal family her own father and causing the untimely death of her father. So class hatred is generated through the emotional categories and affective intensities of kinship bonds so as to render a new and revolutionary regime of emotions legible to the peasantry. And here lies the fundamental distinction between a revolutionary melodrama and say a conventional bourgeois melodrama this drama points to the peasants as the ultimate agent of history and of justice. The task of rooting out injustice really lies on the back of the peasantry under the leadership of the, the Communist Party. And you may also have noticed that this is very much a story about ghosts and peasant superstitions. Um, so within the realist mode of the narrative, there exists a strong element of the fantastic and the melodramatic, as I just pointed out. So as a matter of fact, when this music drama was first released, it was actually criticized for being too fantastic. It was Zhou Yang, the leading Marxist theorist, literary critic, and the main figure who actually sponsored the production of The White Hair Girl, he defended the revolutionary nature of the white-haired girl by saying that the narrative was, quote, rich in romanticism, has a truthful significance, and can help further the aims of class education. Zhou Yang took issue with critical realism in the 1930s precisely because of its inability to offer any solutions of positive construction other than exposing the darkness of society. So this is an essay that Zhou Yang wrote in the 1930s. 30s. Although the realists have attacked society's ugliness and exposed its defects, they stop at criticism, contributing nothing positive. Their inborn detachment prevents them from coming out with their own program. In this passivity, this contemplative nature, lie the basic faults of old style realism. Of course, refers to this kind of 19th century European critical realism bound as it was by the constraints of the time. So Zhou Yang reveals here the epistemological and creative impasse at the heart of critical realism, the distance and the external stance realists maintain with their subject matter rendered them unable to look internally at their own creative principles, that it is in the passivity and the pure contemplative nature of critical realism that lie its historical limits and critical impasse. 
really partly because of his disappointment with critical realism and its failure to bring about revolution, Zhou Yang in the 1930s began to introduce the most recent theoretical debates on socialist realism happening in the Soviet Union into China with a very strong preference for the synthesis of realism and revolutionary romanticism. But Zhou Yang's endorsement of romanticism in realist aesthetics entails more than a mere adherence to the tenor of so Soviet socialist realism. His defense of the fantastic element in The White-Haired Girl really highlighted romanticism's function in revealing the truth of reality. And um, his ideas really echoes with one of his contemporaries, the very famous Marxist literary critic and um, philosopher George Lukacs, that there is a higher hidden truth beneath reality that cannot be comprehended without the proper aesthetic form. That's why we need romanticism within the realist aesthetics. Okay. Um, and we really see a continuation of this kind of ideas on aesthetic, on realism, articulated by Zhou Yang in the 1930s, decades after during the Cultural Revolution. So this is a quote from a document, um, document called Summary of the Forum on Literature and Art for the Army, a speech delivered by Jiang Qing, the wife of Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao in 1966. So this is a document that eventually became the de facto guidance for the production of those theatrical works and other kinds of artistic creation during the Cultural Revolution. So here's Zhang Qing. We must create heroic characters of the workers, peasants, and soldiers. We must create typical characters. Chairman Mao said life as reflected in works of literature and art can and ought to be on a higher plane, more intense, more concentrated, more typical, nearer the ideal, and therefore more universal and that actual everyday life. This is a quote from Mao Zedong's very famous talks at the Yan'an Forum delivered in 1942. The idea that there is a higher, more ideal reality really requires aesthetic text to depart from the surface of reality to depict the hidden, to capture the hidden truth. And this brings me to my chapter four. The, one of the theatrical model works produced during the Cultural Revolution is this opera film called The Red Lantern. The Red Lantern is set during the Second Sino-Japanese War. It centers on a family of revolutionaries, which in the most dramatic moment that occurs later in the narrative is revealed to share no biological connection. So after the father, so this is the father Li Yuhe and the grandmother Granny Li are executed by Japanese forces, the granddaughter of the Li family carries on their fight and continues the revolution in their wake. The sudden re revelation of the true identity of this adopted family forms one of the most significant emotional and affective climaxes in this opera film. 
the lantern relies on many, many key features of the melodramatic mode, including excessive emotionalism, familial intimacies, moral polarization, and stylized performance. And of course, the use of music. I argue in this chapter that the opera film radically redefines family and kinship as one based on class rather than biological connection, as demonstrated by an aria sung by the main protagonist, the father Li Yuhe. People say that black family always all, but class camaraderie always mountain tie. I know. So now I'd like to for you to look at a couple of moments in this opera film that it's histrionic performance style, the melodramatic theme of tears, affective intensity. And this is this happens after the father's arrest. Um, the granddaughter and the grandmother are overcome by grief. And there's a lot of hugging and shedding tears together on screen. Um, and the camera's ability to close up on facial expressions really intensified the kind of emotional intensity being expressed on, on screen. So this is where the, the grandma reveals the truth of their family and more caressing and hugging and the grandmother passes on the mission of the revolution and the granddaughter gladly accepts the mission. And <clears throat> so the, the kind of affective intimacy and bonds between the grandmother and granddaughter in the diegetic world of the film are vital to the continuation of the revolution. It actually ensures the reproduction of a revolutionary air. And um, the, the film scholar Jason McGrath in his study of cultural revolution opera films and the realist tradition in Chinese cinema points out the productions of these opera films marked the culmination of a formalist shift in Chinese cinema in which highly stylized performance and the melodramatic mode of narration replaced earlier mimetic cinematic realism both melodramatic performance style and performance style of traditional Chinese operas are non-mimetic, non-realist performance style, a style that punctuates the flow of motion into discrete semantic units so that the audience can read the meaning. So the, the gesture of the grandmother and the granddaughter are often held for an extended period of time so that the audience can have plenty of time to read it as something that obtains the ultimate meaning or to use Peter Brook's famous phrase, quote, as the true result from the real. So this demand of the melodramatic mode to go beyond the surface of the real to the he truer hidden reality really resonates with the Maoist aesthetics of, the, of revolutionary romanticism that contains art should depart from surface reality to depict a higher and more idealized reality to reveal the truth hidden beneath. 
And since we don't have much time left, I just wanted to say a few brief words on my epilogue. My epilogue wanted to return to the, to the author Ba Jing and toward the end of the Cultural Revolution. Um, ba Jing was persecuted during the Cultural Revolution. He suffered enormous personal loss. His beloved wife actually died. And the narrative of trauma and suffering became the dominant mode of discourse as intellectuals were recuperated by the state and regained discursive power. So in other words, melodrama returned. But this sole focus on victimhood and suffering is also highly problematic. It reveals a deeper failure to address the uneasy relationship between intellectuals and the masses that the communist revolution really attempted to transform. So reading Bajin's essays is a way for us to rethink the individual and collective experience of modernity and history and the multiple modes of feelings, whether it's class hatred, revolutionary passion, personal tragedy, romantic love, and so on and so forth. Certain feelings get normalized and even abused at a certain point and then cast aside and forgotten. Scholarship written in the post-Mao era in China and the West has always privileged the personal, the subjective, the inner feelings over collective and social sentiments. So my project really hopes to engage with aesthetic texts that bear testament to such multiplicity and, not, and in doing so, not to invalidate one particular mode. And with that, I will end my, my presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Wang Ting, for that fascinating uh, uh, presentation. I would now like to invite uh, people from the audience to enter their questions into the chat, on, and then I will share them. Um, I'll I'll start off. I've got one. So I'm especially interested in where you ended up uh, with your description of Bajin in the epilogue. And I'm on the one hand, I'm I'm completely fascinated by the idea that um, the characteristics of melodrama dovetailed with the revolutionary agenda of the communist uh, uh, revolution in China. Um, and, uh, and, but I'm, I'm interested in the May 4th movement because of the kind of um, aesthetics and uh, modernism that I study and I, and I know mm -hmm. some of the May 4th writers, but I'm especially interested in this place you get to at the end where you talk about the kind of um, revelation of the cost for intellectuals uh, in this revolutionary extension of um, aesthetic um, impact to the masses uh, that the that the intellectuals had failed to do, but the, that the this joining of revolutionary um, interests in the melodramatic mode in these anti-realist modes succeeded in, and I'm interested in this sort of price that these intellectuals paid during the Cultural Revolution, mm -hmm. and that that, that that part of the revolution, those people who had been important in the early stages of the revolution became sort of casualties uh, of absolutely. this shift. Um, mm -hmm. Would you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the culture, the history of the Cultural Revolution is really, a quite complicated one. There isn't one narrative of the story. There are multiple sides of the story. So from the perspective of the intellectual, 
then it was a quite horrible time because a lot of intellectuals were persecuted. Um, and if someone's ideological stance was perceived as not in line with the official ideology, and then um, they would suffer really, really horrible consequences. Um, like Zhou Yang, he, he was such a prominent figure in the creation of the new revolutionary culture and literature. And he, he was completely cast aside during the Cultural Revolution. And of course, the, all those May 4th intellectuals. Um, really, um, I think my project is really looking at this very uneasy relationship between intellectuals and the masses that the Communist Party really claims to represent the masses and there is the real desire to go toward the masses that to create, to live among. So the, the term was to go, go, go deeper into life, to actually live and eat among the peasants, <laughs> the workers, you know, to re-educate the intellectuals, um, to change their own class stance. Many did that. Um, but it wasn't enough somehow. And that really bespeaks the kind of high stakes at artistic and aesthetic creation in, in modern China, especially under the Communist Party. Um, that is somehow so different from say a liberal society where intellectuals matter. We, we like to think we matter, but never on that kind of level, the kind of faith that people put in you know, aesthetics and the power of aesthetics to, to actually make revolution happen. So we have uh, two questions from Roy Chan. I'll give you the first. How does Bajin go from describing children being sacrificed at the altar of the family to making symbolic sacrifice to his family after the cultural revolution? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, that is a fascinating question. Yeah, um, I guess the, the question of sacrifice um, lies really in the kind of ritualistic purpose of this. And um, Ba Jing, during the May 4th, um, his novel was really representative of the kind of denunciation of the traditional family as a system that sacrifices its own children, its own younger generation. Um, and I guess the, the theme of cannibalism never goes away, never went away. Um, it came up again and again, maybe as a tool, as a trope to make accusations against an unjust system. I guess from Bajin's perspective, who had lived through the Cultural Revolution, who had experienced all that trauma and persecution. And that trope of cannibalism, of sacrifice, then became useful to turn on what he had experienced, what he perceived to be such an injustice and, um, and making sacrifice to his family 
and his own action of writing the, 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 the collection of the essays, collection of random thoughts was to memorize history, right? To commemorate history so that the, the history of the Cultural Revolution is not forgotten by anyone. And that act of writing, I guess also functions as a kind of sacrifice. Um, it's, it's, it is to memorize history. Um, and um, yeah, Bajin was someone who never let go of the trauma. And he was the one who insisted on building a museum to commemorate the Cultural Revolution. And I guess all those symbolic acts would for him carry some kind of meaning. So Roy's next question is, how do you respond to recent critiques of affect theory, which you use very much, that affect theory creates apolitical uh, passivity rather than political possibility? Hmm, affect theory, yeah. Um, own work draws a lot from affect theory, but it's, it is such, such a, challenge and thorny question to address the affective power of aesthetic text. So um, like we are literary scholars, we're trained in formal analysis. You know, we do the kind of analysis that the aesthetic form of this text would function in certain way, right? It would produce certain affective experience. It would have certain kind of political efficacy, um, but sometimes it doesn't work like that. Sometimes it does. And really the challenge, um, I guess, is to find a, a balance. Did that help? So the next question yeah, is from, the, the next question is from Marm Epstein who, uh, who uh, says, melodrama continues to be a favorite mode of state produced popular culture. Could you comment on the de-revolutionizing of melodrama in the post-Mao year years? Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, melodrama, the family melodrama has been extensively studied in film scholarship on, on Chinese cinema, but they mostly focused on the kind of family melodrama produced in the 1980s, so after the, the Cultural Revolution after all the passions and zeal of the revolution eventually exhausted itself, eventually died down. So family melodrama returns, but to place the obligation of taking care of one's parents on the children. See, revolutionary literature is all about dismantling the hierarchical biological family, right? To form this collective that is either it's based on class solidarity or something else. But post-revolutionary family melodramas is all about going back to this tradition of fulfilling your ethical obligation towards your parents so that the state could stay out of it. Um, this of course goes with the whole neoliberalization of the state, that the state no longer 
function at the welfare state to take off to take care of you know its citizens now the responsibility really lies on the shoulders of the individual so um all the all of those family melodramas again um become what i would call conventional bourgeois melodrama and um it it, it tries to resolve all those social antagonisms and social contradictions again at the level of the personal and individual uh, the next question is from Luke Haberstad. How would you characterize the difference between the emotional affect linking people to the state in revolutionary melodrama and pre-modern traditions of emotionalized politics, uh, as, uh, for example, Confu Confucian loyalty? Is it just that revolutionary melodrama emphasizes the emotions of the masses, or is there something else? Are there connections between the pre-modern and the modern? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think when I was writing my prospectus, I actually uh, started with the, the, the very, a key, very key concept to the Confucian moral and political thought, that is the, the family as a microcosm of the state, right? And in Chinese nation, state, nation state is translated as guojia, the state and the family are linked together. But I think in, in the context of, of the modern history, um, there is that egalitarian, utopian earning that really emerged with modernity, that the masses should have a say in the in governing themselves, in creating a modern nation state. And that is fundamentally different from a hierarchical social order based on you know, Confucianism. And um, it is that kind of egalitarian vision that makes the, the kind of hierarchical structure of traditional society unacceptable which must be overthrown and struggled against. But of course, we know that in practice, equality was never actually achieved and uh, many mistakes were made, personal sufferings and losses and all that. Um, but the, the idea, the ideal of democracy, of, of, of egalitarian society, um, really is what animates all these aesthetics to my aesthetic text to my opinion. So the next question asks if you can specify what the effective components are that are specific to revolutionary melodramas. Are there particular aspects of melodramatic uh, affective components that are that are particular to revolutionary melodrama? Yeah, um, I guess revolutionary melodrama use, uses all of the key aesthetic features of conven conventional melodrama. The only difference is really conventional melodrama produces a feeling of good, right? Suffering is universal and um, it creates this kind of collective that feels, and as long as you suffer and I suffer, and it's okay. And um, 
Whereas revolutionary melodrama, really the emphasis is on, okay, here's, here's suffering, here's injustice, but what can we do about it? It provides a kind of solution that to my opinion was never offered in bourgeois melodrama. So the next question is from uh, Julie Hessler. Uh, and it, it requires a little bit of um, preface. So Julie says uh, that she found your presentation really interesting. Her work is in Soviet history, but in her current project, which I'll just take a minute and say, you can hear more about a week from today at this very time, because Julie is our next work in progress presenter. Uh, in, in the work that she's currently doing, she's done a lot of work with writers, especially non-Russian writers from Central Asia and the Caucasus. She's written about an Azerbaijani writer whose fiction she describes as revolutionary melodrama. Mm. He also thematizes family as a kinship unit as well as the revolutionary community. Uh, but she hasn't thought of the revolutionaries as constituting a family in, in that author's work. Rather, they seem to be an expression of socialist internationalism, uh, revolutionaries of many ethnicities working together as comrades. Could you say more about how the family metaphor operates in the works you study? And do you have a sense that this is a specifically Chinese cultural element in those texts? Yeah, thank you. Um, also was wondering, Dr. Pepes, could you maybe copy the, um, her question so that I could see the name of the, the author? Yeah, I would love to check it out. Um, yeah. Um, a lot of scholars that uh, have studied melodrama and have used the term melodrama to study, you know, Chinese cinema or Chinese culture, um, always had this sort of essentializing view that because, you know, because of Confucianism, because of China, China's traditional culture, um, so much emphasis was placed on family and family wasn't this that private um, sector that's completely devoid from the public sphere of the state or the politics. Um, in, in this Confucian moral and social order, the family is very much linked and intricated linked with the state, with politics. Um, that to some certain, to certain extent is true. Um, but absolutely, a lot of the um, revolutionary texts utilizes this kind of the, the rhetoric of family to envision a kind of class camaraderie that all of the, so sometimes it takes a class line, but sometimes it takes a nationality ethnicity line. So sometimes it's that um, all the proletarian class um, form this one big family. Um, and of course, who goes into that group who goes into the masses, the people, um, with always a, a highly contested idea um, and it had real political consequences. And of course, sometimes it was the Chinese people. So if you remember the, the model opera film that I showed toward the end, um, it, it was set during the second Sino-Japanese war. So the kind of the metaphor of the family really both consists of the proletarian class 
and all Chinese people suffering under the rule of the Japanese. So um, it, it's really a quite versatile me metaphor rhetoric, yeah. So the next question is um, about the whether there are tensions. I mean, you started your talk talking about the apparent contradiction between the idea of melodrama on the one hand and revolutionary revolution on the other. And you've made a very strong and powerful case, I think, for the ways in which in the in these works, those seemingly paradoxical concepts, the aesthetics are brought together. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if there are tensions that uh, uh, that remain despite that conjunction that that have created complications in the kind of uh, political agenda of this aesthetics. Yeah. Um... That is something I've been thinking about as well. But so far, um, especially with revolutionary literature and culture, it, it started off as a middle brow kind of culture. So the same with socialist realism. Socialist realism was never, you know, you never set out to become this high culture. It set off as the middle brow kind of culture that would appeal to the masses. Um, eventually, you know, maybe as the masses acquire more cultural capital, more taste, they would be able to appreciate uh, more sophisticated texts, uh, aesthetic texts. Um, so that, that's Mao Zedong's idea of popularization and elevation. So we popularize aesthetic texts, text, literature, and culture, you know, that appeal to the, the taste, the current taste of the masses, but we eventually, you know, elevate, elevate the, the kind of literary cultural text we produce. Um, and the, you know, as Lauren Berlant so eloquently argues, that middle brow genre is always about the management of ambiguity. It's never about <laughs> producing ambiguity and you know producing contradictions it's always about the management of ambiguity um yeah so in a lot of the revolutionary texts um the message is very clear <laughs> the landlord is evil and must be struggled against and overthrown so we're coming to the end of our time this will probably be the last question the question is during the period when this revolutionary uh, melodrama became predominant and when the uh, intellectuals who had um, preceded it had either um, uh, been assimilated or punished in the Cultural Revolution, were there critiques of this aesthetic uh, either for it being bourgeois or for it being um, uh, insufficiently revolutionary in other ways? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the term revolutionary melodrama was coined by myself. Even you know, previous scholars have used this as well. But melodrama was seldom, the term, the actual term was seldom discussed by Chinese intellectuals. There, there, there were a few, but um, so it's really hard to tell whether they were critical of this you know, melodramatic polarization and all, all those. But um, there were a couple of intellectuals who were aware of melodrama's accessibility and they promoted the use of melodrama to reform, to serve as a model similar to the Soviets, to serve as the model to create a new kind of national music drama. Um, 
And um, especially, of course, during the Second Sino-Japanese War, everything is about war efforts. And um, people completely embraced and celebrated this very oversimplification of what otherwise to be very complicated social realities, right? Good versus evil, it, it dichotomizes so easily that people identify and appreciate and understand the political message so clearly. Um, I think intellectual, a right-wing intellectual also wrote an essay praising melodrama and, and you know, its aesthetic function in mobilizing the masses because you know the the masses are so stupid and um, not intelligent at all this is what works and let's just use this for for war efforts uh, yeah so people both on, on both sides of the political spectrum <laughs> were talking about the political efficacy of this particular aesthetic mode well, thank you, Shuangting, for this uh, really fascinating talk. It's been a real pleasure, and thanks for our questioners for sharing their, their thoughts with us. Um, thanks again for joining us for Shuangting Zhang's Work in Progress talk. Um, let me again remind you of uh, a week from today at noon, uh, we'll be here again for um, the Work in Progress talk of Professor Julie Hessler and um, at the University of Oregon, who is one of our research fellows this year. And Julie's topic, which is, uh, as you have already gathered, intersects with this one in a very interesting ways, is called uh, The Soviet Afro-Asianist Anti-Imperialism and the Soviet Intelligentsia. That's a week from today at noon. Uh, for more information about uh, Julie's talk, as well as other Oregon Humanities Center talks and co-sponsored events, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu. I'll see you next time. Thanks so much, everyone.